You can be seated. As you're seated, I also invite you to pray with me. God, we thank you for this Easter tide season where we remember the power not only of your resurrection, but of the resurrection at work in our lives as a community. Having sung songs of praise, proclaimed call and worship, or call to worship, let us continue to hear a word from you this morning. About the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. So I've used this fancy word a couple times, which some of you may know real well, and others of you may not have heard ever before, which is the season that we're in that's highly anticipated all year round called Eastertide, right? It's actually one of the longer liturgical seasons. Liturgical is a fancy word for our church calendar time. We had the time of Lent that prepared us the 40 days and 40 nights in preparation for Easter. And then now we have 50 days going into preparation for that other holiday that we're all ready for, which is Pentecost, right? You know, the one that we celebrate in the droves and we even know the color that's associated with it. Red. Okay. Some people got it. All right. There we go. Uh, (laughs) Either way, I know that that's not necessarily what brings us to church the first Sunday after Easter, known as Eastertide. But Eastertide uh, is one of the seasons when we focus on what I have said before in this congregation, many places, is God's greatest mystery and kind of craziest endeavor, period, which was we celebrated the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection you know, in the process of leading up to Easter. And now we move into a time where in the liturgical calendar, we remember the church, which is another way to say God's way of embodying God's love and presence in the world after Jesus. And that is through us. (laughs) And I say it's crazy because it really is crazy when you think about it, that God entrusts the church to embody God's love in the world. And that's an audacious claim when we think about it. And it's even more when we think about some of the wrongs that the church has done or the mistakes that the church makes, or even when you just look at yourself as a a piece of that puzzle reflecting God's love and image in the world, you might kind of be like, yeah, but I don't want people looking at me in that way. I've already told a a really uh, funny and tragic story about being a pastor that happened this year that for the first time in my ministry, I had a kid call me God, <laughs> right? Like they go, I, do we get to see God in church today? And the parents were like, yeah, you get to see God, right? And then they came and they say, look, it's God. And they pointed right at me. And I was like, no, this is not okay. And that's happened a few times, uncomfortably so, which is why I'm saying it again, because it's happened again since the last time I told this story in the sanctuary. And so it is a very uncomfortable feeling if you've ever been called God, because um, we're not God, right? And we're very well aware of that fact. And and the series that we're going to embark upon throughout the next weeks together as we lead up to uh, Pentecost is going to be a series not about what we do to be the church, but also about what we don't do. It's a series called The Church Is Not. And then we can fill in the blanks together, right? The Church Is Not. Um, And so this Sunday, we're beginning with the beginning of the church or the beginning of God's movement of this particular people that are reflecting God in the world. And that is with the story of Abram and Sarai. 
Because Abram and Sarai, prior to that, God had been working in the book of Genesis with all of the people, right? It wasn't particular to some sort of sect or group within the world. It was just people universally. Ha-Adam was the name of Adam in, in the Old Testament, and it really is just kind of like earthling. Ha-Adam is kind of from the earth. So it's a generic term for humanity, and Ha-Eretz, which is Eve's word that she has, is again a generic word for women. So it's basically like God's working in humanity throughout the beginning of Genesis. And then I know many of us are uh, Bible scholars and we know exactly what happened before chapter 12 of Genesis. Um, as I was a pastor at Kilohana United Methodist Church back in, in Hawaii Kai, I was doing a, a preparatory Bible study for a sermon on this. And I had one of uh, the ladies there, her name was Rita, and she goes, I can't stand chapter 11. Because chapter 11 begins with God kind of dispersing all the world in the Tower of Babel. And then after that, it goes into a series of what she called the begats. <laughs> so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, right? You've read those, and it's usually people's, like, endeavor, their New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible. They start with Genesis. Everything is going great until chapter 11 after the Tower of Babel, and then they start reading the begats, and they don't understand any of it anymore. And then you got like the Nephilim and all this crazy stuff and people just give up altogether or they make it to numbers and then they really are lost after that or Leviticus, one of the two. But either way, the, the point being is that before this is just a series of names of generations. God had scattered all of God's people or all of the people of the world because they had attempted to do something uh, which was to be like God. Whenever we gather around the communion table, I talk about how God placed us into right relationship with God, and then we find a way to mess it up. And the Tower of Babel was just that. You know, things were going just fine, and then we decided to build this tower, which for us is like, okay, great, we build towers all the time. What's the problem? Well, in the Mesopotamian worldview, God was kind of up in the clouds, right? And the pillars that held the the sky or the waters of the sky, because the sky is blue, right? So there's water up there. But the pillars that held that away were the mountains. And so the idea was that they were trying to get up to the mountains because that's where the pillars that held the cosmos at bay. And that's where God was. And so they tried to build a tower so they could be like God. And then God dispersed and disseminated. But this was kind of the rhythm of Genesis up to this point, is that rhythm of God in right relationship with us, and then us mucking it up in some way, shape, or form. Because the beginning, I mentioned that humanity was all about humanity being made, and they said that we're made in God's image. And that image is not uh, only an individual one. I believe that God's mark is in each and every one of us in a unique and particular way. But if you read the beginning of Genesis, where it talks about we're being made in God's image, it's at the end of this, uh, what's known, I know, a Hebrew lesson, but as a chiastic structure within the Hebrew. Kind of the idea is that what's at the beginning and what's at the end is a way to emphasize what's in the middle of it. It kind of makes an X, chiasm, you know. Um, but the idea is that it begins and it talks about how the God made Adam and Eve, right? And in the image of God, God made them. And so this idea is trying to emphasize in the image of God, but then God made them. 
And the interesting part is that God there is in plural and that the image is kind of emphasized by the them portion, which is another way of saying that God made us in relationship with one another and with God, who was also already in relationship with God, that we're meant to be in relationship. So when we talk about the church and what it is, there's all kinds of ways to talk about the mission of the church, and churches do all sorts of ways of describing that. One of the ways that we have done that here at Kailua UMC that we've inherited is to become a Christ-centered, loving, knowing, serving ohana. Uh, another way that I've heard it said, and that's simple, is to love God, love one another, and love the world, right? But I would say that in either of those, a key is to remember relationships, that God made us to be in relationship with God and relationship with one another, that that is essential to how we live out the mission of God being the church in the world. Okay, so I got a little precursor on Genesis, and now let's look at the story of Abram and Sarai, and as well the story of the church. I'm not sure about your story of experiencing encounters with the church, um, but one of the things that I find as tragic sometimes is when I encounter people who think of the church as a group of hypocrites. Has anyone ever talk, heard anyone say that the church is hypocritical? Yeah. Or that the church is the place where people like pretend that they're good, right? That everyone thinks that they're all together and have their life in order. Or another one is that the church is judgmental, right? Has anyone ever heard that one before? Yeah, right? So the idea is that like for some reason, and I know that like my experience of church people is not that, but for some reason there's this ethos out there that the church is the place that people come who think they have everything together and they look at everyone else and think that they don't have it together. And I know there's some churches that broadcast that out there, right? I mean, they're like, you're going to hell because of X, Y, and Z, right? And they tell people that the only way to get into the golden, get through the golden gates is if you do exactly what they do or believe exactly what they believe, right? Like that, there's churches that do. we have on our sign, open hearts, open doors, open minds, right? Like that's not, not necessarily our persona, but it's out there and we encounter it all the time. And I actually think that we do it in subtle ways in our own hearts, the same thing that's being broadcasted through those other churches. And that's to begin today when we talk about this first component of that mission statement, so to speak, that the church is a place where we love God, right? That's a very basic statement about what we do as a church. Just yesterday, uh, we have a new bishop within our region of the United Methodist Church. Her, her name is Bishop Dottie. It's her first name. She goes by Bishop Dottie. And she was installed in Hawaii yesterday. She was installed in California, but we had a service yesterday. And her scripture reading, which Hudson got to read, and he did a great job. Hudson's my oldest son. So if you want to go online, you can watch him do a great job. It's a dad moment. But she, her scripture reading was this. It was from Matthew 22. And it talked about the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment was to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. That the most important thing that we do is to love God. And I would say that this is uh, the basic premise of what 
the church ought to be about. And I think that the way we understand that is how we also make our greatest failing over and over again throughout the community. The way that we understand to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if we go back to Deuteronomy's version of it, is how we miss the point. And I say that because in the beginning of the story of the church, which is also the story of Israel, New Testament says we're grafted into this story. The beginning when God started this whole endeavor of a covenant of making one between God and God's people was with Abram and Sarai. And now let me ask you a question. If we were in a Bible study, we'd have an opportunity to talk more about this. But as I read the scripture and knowing the context that I talked about before already, what did Abram and Sarai do to inherit their chosenness? And that question is absolutely vital for what it means to be the church. What did Abram and Sarai do to inherit their chosenness? Perhaps you've heard about the chosen people of God, right? When you talk about Israel and it kind of like makes you squirm a little bit because like, what do they do that others don't do to get to inherit this, right? And I think that some of the people, the bad flavor that they have in the mouth of the church is that we walk around as if we're God's chosen people. You know, we know everything and we can do all these things and we are in the right club. But the beginning of the story of all of that is not with anything that we have done. In fact, the only thing that Abram and Sarai did, the, the correct answer to that, by the way, if you were lingering, what am I looking for with that? It's nothing. That's, the, that's it. What did Abram and Sarai do to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. Because God's people, they, I mean, the people of the world, they built a tower, tried to be like God. And God was like, uh-uh, this is not going well. I'm going to confuse you all and give you all different languages, right? And so then God's movement of reconciliation and redemption in the world begins after a series of generations have gone by with God choosing Abram and Sarai. It wasn't because they were outstanding citizens. It wasn't because they had the largest herd of cattle. It wasn't because they had done all the right things. I mean, Abram had like concubines with him and stuff, right? Like they weren't perfect. God simply chose them. And God chose them to then be a blessing to all the world. And I emphasize that point because today's fill in the blank for the church. So if you're looking to make notes with us, the church is not earned. That's it. The church is not earned. And so when we talk about this first statement of loving God, that has, I'm sorry, nothing to do with you and everything to do with you. To love God is not about what we do to love God, but it's about how God has first loved us. About how God, in the midst of our mistakes, chooses to come to us. We build the tower, God comes to us. We killed our brother, Cain, <laughs> or Abel, sorry, and God chooses us. We eat the forbidden fruit, God chooses us. 
over and over again, that's the story is God's love comes to us. And it's the minute that we transition to start thinking that the love of God is something that's earned in our lives is the minute that we start to fall into the problem that we see in the world around people seeing the church. Uh, one of the theologians that actually, and why I'm here today, a Methodist pastor, is because I went to Duke University for seminary. And I went to Duke because, not because I was Methodist, but because there was a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas. And Stanley Hauerwas um, was known for like a kind of a an argument, a theological argument. That's how it works in the theology world. You have like one side and the other side, and they're like kind of doing their duel with one another. And Stanley's uh, kind of counterpart was Reinhold Niebuhr. And Reinhold Niebuhr, what uh, was known as uh, liberalism theology. And so the idea was is that he believed that the kingdom of God can come on earth through our activity. Seems very basic. But he believed that we were the ones to initiate the kingdom of God in the world. And Hauerwas had absolutely none of that. <laughs> he actually was the antithesis of it. They like argued back and forth. Niebuhr thought that through like politi political engagement, through all the things that we do, we expand God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And Hauerwas says, how many times has that gone wrong in our history as the church? That the church isn't about bringing the kingdom here. The church is simply about being the church and allowing the kingdom of God to come. And all of this is kind of like transcendental thought, but, you know, just a generation before these two writers were writing was the generation that was writing around the time of World War II. And another one of those theological duos was uh, Karl Barth, and another is Harnock, or oh no, oh no, I forget the other one. Let's go to Bible study. I'll remember it. But the phrase to a response to another theologian was nine. <laughs> because he had seen logic of the German people, a faithful logic, with theology professors and church leaders signing on to the agenda, had somehow believed that the Volk, the German tradition, the traditional people, were the way of God's future in the world. And that internal logic leads to all the atrocities of World War II. It's this belief that we are bearers of the kingdom of God in ourselves, and we can determine what that looks like. And that's a macro level, but a micro level is I know people who feel unworthy to be in the church. I know some of us here feel unworthy to be in the church or to be what I said, that crazy thought of God's image in the world. And we think it's crazy because we think that we have to do something with all of that. Like that we're supposed to live up to some degree of perfection like Jesus did. But remember, the first commandment, love God, is not first about our love of God, but about God's love of us. That we don't do anything to inherit this claim of the church. 
In fact, our chosen reading for this Sunday, if we were to follow the lectionary as we begin Eastertide season, is with a character of Thomas. Anyone know Thomas? And what did he do? Jesus shows up to all the disciples, and they're all excited about seeing Jesus, and then Thomas comes along. And our first Sunday back after Easter, what do we do? So we hear the words of doubting Thomas. Ah, yeah, I'll see it when I, I'll believe it when I see it. Sure, guys, whatever. I'll have to touch his hands. I want to know it's actually him. I think you guys got it all mixed up. The church is a, you know, group of misfits and, you know, people that are quirky and we somehow like fit together in this unique way and we are anything but perfect. Trust me, I've been in church for a while now. Those of you who've been in church for a while now know that we're anything but perfect. But we're a people that gathers together, not because we've earned this place, but because we are a people who recognize that God first loved us. And it's not just us. It's not like just us in this room. It's like God first loved us, the world. And so we're just simply believing the first step in that, that God out of nowhere calls God's people, which is all of us to be loved by God. And what does it mean to live that back to God is what we're going to talk about next week. How do we give our love back to God? But before I go there, I want to make it very abundantly clear that in order for you to be the church, in order for you to experience the love of God, in order for you to grow in that love, in order for you to be a better human being, in order for you to be a better parent, a better teacher, a better whatever, it's usually going to happen without you. A God working in you, oftentimes through your own mistakes, right? I become a better parent because I screw up so bad that God kind of works in me and says, hey, don't do that again. That was a bad idea, right? And it's only as we acknowledge in the humility that we got all of this out of nothing that we can actually begin to take a step forward and be the church in the world. And so when you encounter the people that say the church is a bunch of hypocrites, I go, yeah, probably. Probably worse than your friends outside the church too, right? We can respond in humility and create a space where people don't think that we're trying to do something better than them. We're just saying, God's done this work for us. Why don't we enjoy the gift? So I'm excited about this journey of being the church together and focusing on what that means for us. But let's first begin with the very distinct reminder, distinct reminder that God first loves us. God gives God's only son for us. And it's through his defeat of death, not our defeat of death, that freedom and joy and peace and love enter the world. Because in the beginning, God called out to Abram and Sarai and said, I choose you. God chooses you to be God's presence in the world. I invite you to pray.
God, we often find ourselves filled with questions and anxieties about whether or not we're worthy of love. Whether it's because of uh, interpersonal family dynamics, whether it's because of our own self-skepticism, and we compensate by trying to be better, trying to show people that we're worthy of love, whether it's our parents, whether it's friends, whether it's you. Help us as we begin this journey of reminding ourselves about how to be the church. Remember that the church is not earned. And instead, we rest in the assurance, the blessed assurance that your love first comes to us. Amen.